Good evening and welcome. If you're visiting uh, with us tonight, my name is Brad Wheeler and I have the privilege of serving here as the senior pastor of UBC and we're grateful to to have you here tonight. And tonight what we want to do is we want to further explore sort of the intersection of faith and politics. I think if if the Kavanaugh confirmation has uh, has done anything, it has reminded us sadly of the great divisions that currently exist as we think about the political sphere. You know, so we've got a lot of tribalism, a lot of vitriol in the language of individuals and um, yeah, the kind of language I'm not accustomed to seeing. I think many of us aren't accustomed to seeing um, by our political leaders and just within culture at large. And I think as Christians, we're often struggling to understand our role and our place. So we recognize that the culture wars are still raging about us. And we recognize that the political parties are shifting and moving themselves. And in all of this, all that shifting ground underneath our feet, we're often trying to understand our response and how we should think about this brave new world. And some Christians will say, hey, you know what? It's not worth it. Let's just retreat. Others will sort of pick up our political pitchforks and we dig in for a fight. And you've got sort of those extremes within uh, the Christian marketplace. So how should a Christian, how should a, a citizen of God's kingdom think about those civic responsibilities in this kingdom, sort of the kingdom of man, so to speak? And that's part of what we want to think about tonight, which again, appropriate given not just what we've been through recently, but given the upcoming even midterm elections. So I'm delighted, therefore, honored to introduce our guest tonight. Uh, Our guest has done undergraduate work in political science. He's done a graduate degree at the London School of Economics. He was an editor for an economics publication in Washington, D.C. after that. And then he did an MDiv and did a Ph.D. in sort of political philosophy kind of things from the University of Wales. Uh, he uh, is the editorial director at Nine Marks. He's written extensively on the church, so you may not have ever seen him, but you've seen the books. So you've seen me give this one away on church membership, this one away on church discipline, this longer one on the church and the surprising offense of God's love, which is excellent, and one we've been plugging recently, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. So I've been passing this around, and this is largely the conversation we're going to be having tonight, though not exclusively. As we get into Q&A, we can go some different directions. But if you want to even think about these things some more after we leave, we do have copies for purchase in the back. I even have two to give away now. Sunday night, you don't raise your hands, but Jonathan comes and all the hands go up. Okay, you get to be the judge of who gets these wonderful gifts. All right, so uh, Jonathan is the, uh, he's the husband to Shannon. He's a father of four girls. Uh, and despite all that erudition, he is a wonderful churchman. So I've had the privilege of serving uh, with our guest uh, two different churches, one in Louisville, one in Washington, D.C. Always been blessed by his pastoral heart and his care. And I personally consider it a great honor that I get to count him as a friend. So wonderful to have him. Jonathan Lehman, we're grateful to have you. We're about to have you come up and speak in one second. I just wanted to tell you, before he comes up, what, what, what should you expect? So about 25 minutes, he'll share some thoughts. And then we're going to do a little bit of Q&A at the outset following those comments. And then just to open it up for us to have a conversation, ask questions, um, whatever you would like. I should say, also an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church, recent church plan. So if you have church planning questions, maybe those are even inbounds as well. All right, let me pray for our time. And then Jonathan will come. God, we're grateful for this chance to gather. Grateful for the chance to 
uh, for Jonathan to be with us to help think about our civic duties and responsibilities as Christians. So we want to live as, as citizens of your kingdom and know how to do that well in the kingdom here. And Lord, we pray you give us wisdom. We pray that especially we'd have a hearts of charity and love uh, as we think through these things and that we would recognize always that the great hope we have is not finally in government, but it is in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, you bet. Are you on? I might have to tap this thing. Hi, friends. <laughs> I just speak louder. Is that good? Is that on? Are we are. on? All right, there we are. Grateful to be with you. Brad is a dear, sweet friend, and a friend who has walked me through difficult seasons of my life, you know. I trust as he is pastoring you, he has pastored me uh, in my selfish heart. That's the best way I can commend him. He, he pastored me wonderfully at different times, and I'm, I'm grateful he's your pastor because he is a beloved brother. Thank you, and it, it, it's fun to be here with you. Um, you know, I'm from Washington. Be honest, you're a, little, you're a little suspicious about anybody coming out of Washington. Kind of, right? Uh, I admit I, I've always been interested in politics. I ha- did degrees, as he mentioned, in political science and political theory and so forth. I've, I did the political internships in college and worked in some politics after college and been writing in that subject area, especially faith and politics. Confession time, when I was in high school, not only did I want to be president, I actually was convinced in my own head I would be. Uh, Humility time, show me your hands if you actually ever thought you wanted to be president. Okay, so a dozen honest people in the room. (laughs) That's good. I thought this was a Christian church, but um, I understand why politics is scary. I understand why it's threatening. It's, it's, it's divisive, right? People come with strong conceptions of how things ought to be, and they divide. They clash. You might have seen the Hillary Clinton interview on CNN shortly after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings in which she said, you cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for. If we are fortunate enough to win back the House and or the Senate, that's when civility can start again. I'm not meaning just to pick on Hillary Clinton there. I think we, we see that across right and left. This like, you're trying to destroy what I stand for. No, I'm not going to be civil, right? And, and uh, I don't need to describe to you guys the present moment. You, you feel it, you experience it, you read about it. So what I want to think about is what is a right Christian approach to politics? I'm not going to say everything that could be said. I'm going to say a few things. But first, three wrong Christian approaches to politics. Very briefly, wrong path number one is disengagement. Disengagement. Call this the Jonah option. All right? What did Jonah do? He fled. Getting out of there. Uh Christians need to remain engaged for the sake of love and justice. If I had a whiteboard, I would just write those words, love, justice. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves in part by pursuing justice, right? Just, just that alone. We've got to stay engaged. Okay? 
Wrong path number two is capitulation. Call this the Judas option. Just kind of go along with the powers that be. Okay. An extreme example of this would be the German Evangelical Party established in 1933 to do what? Anybody? What did the German Evangelical Party in 1933 do? They created a form of the church that went along with Nazi Party policy. That, that's an extreme example of capitulation, Right? I think a subtler example is how liberal Christian churches of today are just going along with the liberal Christian, uh, uh, social ethic on sex. That, that would be a, a subtler example of capitulation. And this path of capitulation always looks promising. You win friends, right? You get access because you're going along with them. But, of course, it's a way of saying peace, peace, where there really is no peace. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not do this. Right? Judas did do that. Wrong path number three, worldly engagement. This is probably the biggest temptation for evangelical Christians. You pursue good things, but with a worldly strategy or tone. So you make compromises you shouldn't. You undermine your witness you give earthly political outcomes an outsized importance. As if this next election is the most important thing in the world. Lots of exclamation points. All cap sentences. And in the process we tell the people around us that God really isn't that powerful. That's why we have to scream. And we say our party really is, or rather Christianity really is, just an appendage of this or that party. And quietly hiding under the floorboards of this third approach is a quiet utopianism. As if we could bring heaven to earth now. Build the kingdom now. We have to do this. Christianity depends on this. That's not the way Jesus talked. What's a better approach look like? Five steps. Five steps. Step one. Just hit the restart button on how we think about faith and politics. When I went to the publisher with this book, my, my working title was Political Restart. And they're like, nah, I don't think so. But that's, that's the first step I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting. Hit the restart button on how we think about faith, faith and politics. What I find is in, in, in America, God has given us an, an amazing nation, Right? And, and many of the principles on which this nation was established uh, were Christian principles. Pray, pray, praise God. You know, the, the, the dignity and the equality of every human being. Not many countries in the history of the world acknowledged that and treated its citizens that way. But that's right out of Genesis 1 and, and, and the idea that all people are created in God's image. Uh, the problem is along the way, I think it was easy for us as Christians to sometimes confuse pr principles of Christianity with, with principles of Americanism. And, and sometimes the sacred lines of the nation's history of the people, for the people, by the people, all men were created by God 
with their certain inalienable rights. Sacred lines from American history began to blur with the political lines of Scripture. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and to God what is God's. And, and so we, we began to interpret one by the other. or We interpret Scripture kind of with our American ideas. Let, let, let me think through just one example. This Render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. What, what does that mean? Well, on the one hand, certainly Jesus is saying to, to a group of Jews who are listening to him and, and saying, no, I understand you think you want a Jewish king back. I, I understand you're under Rome and you don't think Rome is legitimate and, and you, you want the throne of David back, but you know what? You're still to render honor to Caesar. And, and Jesus was, as it were, dividing church and state in a way that to the Jewish mind was new. Okay, I think Americans rightly understand that. And so what we then do is it's like we have two circles, right? You have a circle of Caesar's things, and you have a circle of God's things. Render to Caesar what is Caesar, to God's what is God's. Two separate circles. And over here in, in Caesar's things, we have like government, you know, public policy, politics, that kind of stuff. And, and over here in the circle of God's things, we have church and and religion, and salvation, and worship. But is that what Jesus was saying? Well, look at the context a little more closely. What does he say? He says, bring, bring me a coin. Whose, whose, whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And of course, all the Jews there would have known, in whose image is Caesar's? gods. They knew that. He knew that. In other words, to render to God what is God's includes Caesar. You have one big circle, God's things. And inside of that big circle, a smaller circle, Caesar's things. And sure enough, a few chapters later, Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So what I'm saying is hitting the political restart button. This is kind of complicated. Or this is this is tough. On the one hand, we need to understand there is a separation of church and state. But the separation of church and state is not the same thing as the separation of religion and politics. I'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. That's step one. Step two. Invest our political hopes firstly in the church. Invest our political hopes firstly in the church. That's a weird thing to say. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, again, church and state are distinct God-given institutions. He, he gives the state one authority and he gives the church another authority and they're not to exercise each other's authority. Just like you have you have one authority when you go into work and you have another kind of authority with your children. Okay, those, are, those are distinct authorities they're giving you. One at work, one at home, distinct authorities. You understand that. One to the church, one to the state. Distinct authorities. Okay, and that, but, but, but at the same time, I'm, I'm saying invest your political hopes firstly in a church. What, what are you talking about? Well, what I'm saying is every church is political and every government is a deeply religious battleground of God's. I'm going to unpack each of those one at a time. And let me do that by telling you a story, a true story, about the political nature of the church 
a true story about a friend of mine named Charles. Charles is a Washington, D.C. speechwriter who writes speeches for people whose names you know or would read about in the newspaper. His job has him right at the center of American politics. Okay? Charles also spends time with Freddie. Freddie, also a member of the church, was eventually caught stealing from church members to support his drug habit. And so he was removed from membership in the church because he refused to repent and confess the stealing, give up the drug addiction. And eventually, Freddie ended up homeless. And that's when Charles entered the picture into Freddie's life and began reading the Bible with Freddie. And little by little, Charles helped Freddie come to a point where he was ready to confess and repent and even one day stand in front of the church, read out a confession. Really, he preached the confession. It was, it was beautiful. Were you there? Preached his confession. I stole from you. I lied to you. I ended up homeless. God has had mercy on me. And the church cheered and embraced him, and it was wonderful. Charles and Freddie obviously embraced. Okay, here's the GDP size question. Which Charles is the political Charles? The speechwriter or the disciple maker? Let me put that another way. Which Charles deals with welfare policy, housing policy, education policy? Both. In fact, the speechwriter would tell you that it's the disciple maker that gives life and shaping and, and, and fashions and integrity to the speechwriter. You see, it's the same God governing, the same Bible applying, the same kingdom ruling in that man's life. You see? And it's through relationships like these that the local church should become a model political society for all the nations to see. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Is that then completely divorced from the kingdoms of the world? Well, you can only enter the kingdom of God by being born again. That's true. But as we step into the world, we say, okay, kingdoms of the world, do you, do you see what political rule really should look like? This is what righteousness and justice and love should like. And we're to be a model for the nations. So our political hopes start there in the church. Ever since the, be, uh, uh, since the American founding, or before the American founding, Governor John Winthrop of the, of the Massachusetts Bay Company comes along, or in the, in the Plymouth Colony comes along and says, we, the, you know, the colony are to be a city on the hill. And John F. Kennedy picked up that language in his speech. America is to be a city on the hill. And Ronald Reagan picked up that language. Or to be a city on the hill. What does Jesus say is to be a city on the hill? Not America. The church. Or you think of those wonderful words inscribed in marble. If you've been to the Lincoln Monument. I love the Lincoln Monument. You guys have seen uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You know, Jimmy Stewart on the tour bus around D.C. He's like, whoa. I love that. That's, what, that's like me in D.C., you know. Put me on the tour bus. Go up to the Lincoln Monument and, 
And you look to your right, and you see inscribed in marble the, marble, the second inaugural address, where he talks about the final few phrases of that address are, uh, you know, fervently do we hope and do we pray for, for uh, messing this up. Uh, the ability to achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Achieve and cherish. Think about the nation divided by war, right? Civil war. Achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Friends, where will we achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations first? I hope at University Baptist Church. And I hope at Chevrolet Baptist Church. And churches around the globe. Right? It's in the life of the church where we first learn to love our enemies. It's those people who promise to show up for nursery when you schedule them for and they don't show up on time. And you're called to forgive them. It's in the church where we first learn to love our enemies, where we where we trade in our, our swords for plowshares and our spears for pruning hooks because he just gossips about me and I really want to smack him. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to confront him gently and in love and in tenderness, giving ample opportunity to forgive and confess. And we'll walk through this together. Nations, you want to see what righteousness and justice look like? Look here. That brings us to a third step. We must learn to be before we do. We must learn to be before we do. If our political hopes should rest first in our churches, we must learn to be before we do. I'm thinking of Paul who asked the Jews of his day, you who preached against stealing, do you steal? I got a few questions of my own. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church with a different skin color or nationality than you? You who speak against abortion, do you also embrace and assist the single mother in your church? Do you encourage adoption? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give the, to the needy in your own congregation? You who say, it's not black lives matter, it's all lives that matter. You who say that, do all of your friends look just like you? Do you make social relational decisions that demonstrate that all lives matter? You who share your political opinions on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's suppers with brothers and sisters who disagree with you? You pray for them. To some extent, we need to shift our focus from redeeming the nation to living as a redeemed nation. From transforming the culture to being a transformed culture. Number four, work for good government with whatever stewardship you have, whatever your job is, whatever your calling is, work for good government, but recognize what the public square is. It is a battleground of God's. Work for good government, but recognize what the, what the public square it is. It is, it is a battleground of God's. If, if you're not familiar with that phrase, public square, what, what is that? Well, it's, it's all those places that the nation goes to, to talk 
and debate and make decisions that bind the whole public. The, the public square is the letter to the editor, the parent-teacher association, the hallways of Congress, right? But more than that, the public square is the place where a nation goes to wage war on behalf of their gods. Big G, small g. We in America like to pretend that the public square is neutral. Like, I'm, I'm going to leave my religion behind. I'm going to leave my gods behind. We're going to come here and we're just going to we're going to reason together. Well, th that's impossible. No one leaves their gods behind. Not the Christian, not the Muslim, not the Hindu, not the atheist, not the progressivist, not the secularist. Nobody leaves their god, big G or gods, small g, behind. As I said, it is impossible. A while back, I was teaching some Christian college students who had come to D.C. to do internships, and I was explaining that the public square is the battleground of gods, everybody waging war on behalf of their gods, and one of the students raised his hand and said, so Jonathan, are, are you saying that we should actually impose our morality on people through law? And I said, name one law for me that doesn't impose someone's morality. Just, just name one class was quiet, and then it kind of chuckled. That's what law does. Law imposes morality. You, you can't get away from that. Or similarly, I think of Senator Dianne Feinstein when she, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, was um, challenging a Roman Catholic woman who had been nominated for a federal circuit court judge, Senator Feinstein, said, you know, I, I'm concerned because your dogma, meaning her religious dogma, your dogma lives loudly within you. I don't know if you can, you know, be a good judge because your dogma lives loudly within you. And what's my response to that? And yours doesn't. And yours doesn't? Of course it does. In 1858, Stephen Douglas, in a debate with Abraham Lincoln said he was neutral on the matter of slavery. He doesn't care if it was voted up or down, he said. And Lincoln reasonably replied, the only person who could say that is somebody who was fine with slavery. You're not neutral. And so it is behind every Senate Judiciary Committee vote, every Supreme Court decision, every protester's picket line, every social media campaign, every picketer, is someone's basic worldview of how things ought to be. And behind that worldview of how things ought to be is a God. You can't get away from that. And that's true whether we're talking about abortion or same-sex marriage or tax law or federal funding for national parks. There's always a worldview behind it, and behind that is a God, which governs even determines what we then do in the public square. So friends, when we go into the public square, we don't leave our God behind, and neither do they. And that's what you have. We call them culture wars. What they really are are wars of religion. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed, His Messiah? The biggest political division in the Bible is not between right and left, globalist, nationalist. It's between Christ and Antichrist. Either you're for Jesus or you're against Jesus. According to the Bible, that's the biggest political division. Okay? Number five. As Christians, we need to be less 
American and more patriotic. We need to be less American and more patriotic. In other words, I want to help you, brothers and sisters in Christ, identify with Christ more so that you can better love your neighbor, no matter what nation you live in. When you become a Christian, your identity dramatically changes. That's what we mean when we say born again, new creation, right? And suddenly, the most important thing about you is not your name, your parents' name, your gender, your nationality, uh, your job, uh, all these things, your ethnicity, all these things that the world uses to identify you. Instead, what you do, it's not like those things suddenly vanish, though. Let's just take me as an example. My name is Jonathan. God has gifted me and challenged me in particular ways. Well, I take those gifts and challenges before God and say, okay, God, how would you have me use them? He's made me the son of a Lehman, son of Barb and Dave, right? Okay, Lord, how would you have me use my family membership to honor you and to love them? And he's made me a male. Okay, God, how do you define maleness? Forget what the world says is male or female or not. What do you, King Jesus, say is, is man? And how would you use my manness, my maleness, whatever that is, according to your word, for, for the good of others? Okay, You've made me an American. How can I use the advantages of being an American for your purposes and your glory? Okay, <clears throat> you've made me white. What, what, what advantages or privileges or opportunities have you given me because I'm white? Now, how can I use them for the love of neighbor and the love of you, Lord God? I can go through all of these categories and say, God, what would you have me do? You see, in other words, all of these things become kind of loose-gripped. Well, citizen of the kingdom, son of the divine king, born again, that's firm grip. And that's what I mean when I want to say, I want you to be loosening your grip on what it means to be American just long enough that we can let Jesus define it and what Jesus would have you do with it. That's why the Bible calls us aliens, strangers, exiles. There's almost a sense in which all of your memberships in this world are like, are like shoes that don't quite fit. So I'm putting on my little brother's shoes and they're too small and I can't quite get them on. Or I'm putting on my, my dad's shoes and they're too big and they're flopping around. And so I'm, I'm in the shoes, but I'm not quite of the shoes, right? Nothing quite fits because I'm a Christian. And... This also means, remember, that the rage of the nations, Psalm 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 2 is not finally about the rage of the nations. It's finally about the futility of the nation's rage. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, says. Friends, do we need to panic by what's going on around us? Not according to Psalm 2. The Lord laughs. Think you guys are going to overturn me? So in that sense, a Christian's political posture, let me sum up, a Christian's political posture isn't to withdraw and panic. It's not to go in and make all the compromises that we can to dominate. Rather, a Christian's political posture is to represent. 
And we can represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, whether the skies are cloudy or clear. Times are good, times are bad, doesn't matter. Our job is the same, and we can move in with a cheerful confidence, knowing that King Jesus wins, right? That's why my church cares about welfare policy. So when church member Jane found herself homeless, we tried to place her in safe housing. But due to various mental difficulties, she rejected that, and she was ended up in a park sleeping on a bench. And so Luther went down and slept on a park bench near her because he was concerned about her welfare. That's why my church cares about tax policy. And so Carlos, who spends his working days explaining to U.S. Congress the tax act implications of new implications or new legislation, has spent many evening hours helping a family in crisis with their taxes. Uh, my church also believes it's important to address America's race problem, or at least our own race problem. And so one Sunday morning when it was announced that I was going to come back in the evening and give a dress on race, Patty came up to me and said, Patty, I said, Jonathan, I'm so glad you're going to speak on race tonight. Can I be honest with you? I have a really hard time with black people. I know it's wrong. And so I'm glad you're talking about it. I said, Patty, do you know um, Chris? And Chris is a godly, mature African-American man. Do you know Chris and his wife? Yeah. What would you think of calling them up and saying, I'd love to have dinners with you guys. Can I come over for dinner? Just invite yourself over to dinner at their house. And tell them what you just told me. And she said, are you serious? And I said, I'm not sure. But <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And she did. And Chris and his wife forgave her and embraced her wonderfully. And she grew a little bit more in righteousness that day. And they grew in love. And they showed the nations what true justice and righteousness looks like. Because they have the gospel and the spirit of God. Right? Real politics begins not with your political opinions, but with your everyday decisions. It begins not with public advocacy, but with personal affections. It begins not all by your lonesome, but with a people, your congregation. Inside the local church is where Christian politics becomes complicated and authentic and credible and not ideologically enslaved and real. It's in these real-life situations where you're forced to think about what true righteousness is, what true justice is what obligations you possess towards your fellow God-imagers and what you yourself are really made of. Brad, what should we do? Should I pray? Should we do Q&A? We're going to do Q&A. You're Q &A. welcome to pray, of course. Let me pray. Father God, we confess that we are selfish, and yet Jesus came and showed us what true service and true rule looks like came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, help us to do that with one another in our churches. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, so we're going to do a little bit of Q&A here for, I don't know, 10 minutes-ish or so, 5, 10 minutes, and then open up to you all, all right? So I think if I understood correctly, you're saying um, that we are more patriotic by identifying less with the American flag, in part, so that we can make America great again by making the church great again. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, like that's the way to make America great again is through the church? I, I, I don't know what the Lord's plans are for America. I know that I'm called to be a good neighbor. Yeah. And I, I look, I, I love America. I, I love baseball. Uh, I used to sneak out of high school and go down to Wrigley Field to watch baseball games. Uh, I love American history. So I, I'm not anti-America. Please, please yeah. Yeah. do not misunderstand. Uh, I've, I've traveled enough to other nations to know how great this country is. It is, it is, it is a gift from God in many ways. I'm just saying don't, don't confuse the gift with the giver, right? Um, and the best way we can serve our country is, is um, to identify with Christ first. Yes, the, the, the reason I'm a little nervous about saying make it great again, well, there's a couple of reasons. For whom? What's that? For whom? Well, for whom? So if you're an African-American, how is America today versus 1960? I'd say it's a whole lot better. Versus 1860, I'd say it's a whole lot better. Right? So history is complicated, right? Some things get better, some things get worse. We as Christians don't finally rest our hope in history. William likes that. that. (laughs) We don't rest our hope in history or finally what God is... He's not building His kingdom on this earth. So that's not where our hope is. Um, But yes, insofar as he, he would use us to, to, to improve, enhance, make great yeah. any given country, yes. Yeah, I often think that, uh, so the Trail of Tears passed largely through this area. Yeah, okay. And you've got reservations just on the other side of the border and so forth. And yeah, every time I look at sort of the $20 bill, you see Andrew Jackson. Yeah, Most, I mean, you know, who effectively enabled that policy was behind that policy. Well, that's right, right. So you think of a Native American In pulling out a $20 bill. Tens of thousands died. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you've ever been to Four Corners... I mean, that's, you, could have, you couldn't have put them on a more inhospitable place right. you know, as a people. Right. So part of what you're saying is invest in churches primarily, worry secondarily about like Congress and courts and so forth. Is that another well, way of putting there's it? There's certainly a place to worry about Congress and courts. Yes, but, but a but, matter of priority. As a matter of priority, right. I, I'm, I've just become increasingly convinced that the most important things we can do politically to help our country is, 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 is to start at home. Right, and and to love the people around you because if you if you can't do that then you're kind of just a hypocrite, you're telling them to be righteous when when your own lives aren't modeling that, right? So yeah, I'm I'm saying that's got to be our priority, and and as you see, a nation um, uh, filled with Bible believing. Gospel preaching, healthy churches, yeah, that makes a difference. It leaves like pockmarks, like asteroids on the moon. I don't think we're going to bring heaven to earth as such, but I, I, but I think we can make indents, you know, in, in, in a culture. I, I think 
much of the, um, I'm, I mean, I'm not a historian, so I'm always reluctant to, to speak too much here, but I think much of the, the flourishing and the, and the moral virtue that characterized, say, the early decades of American history was because, not because of the classical liberal theories that John uh, that, that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison came up with, I think it's because Thomas Jefferson and James Madison went to Sunday school and they believed that all men are created equal because that's what they learned in the Bible. And even if they eventually rejected the Bible as, as the full word of God, they lived out a Christian virtue. It was a borrowed capital. It was a borrowed capital. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, think, I think Christians in a culture have a, a leavening effect. Where do we start? We start in our own lives and affections and relationships in our churches. Do you think evangelicals place too much hope in politics yes. or too little? Too much. Too much. Now, do you think that's true of evangelicals just in D.C. or broadly? I, you travel around, you speak. You're like a little pope on these matters. I think the... Um, I think Americans do generally. I think it's part of the American tradition. Evangelicals. Well, I would say Americans generally, and, 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 and yes, American Christians and evangelicals uh, are trying to make our country a city on the hill. And again, that's just not the way Jesus taught. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's always been part of our tradition. So I, I don't know if it was Trevin Wax. If you, I'm sorry, if you go to Christians, or go, to, go talk to Christians in China. Iran. Ask them how much hope they put in politics. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I don't know, maybe Trevin Wax who said, oh, like, if you're under 45, yeah. then, uh, well, let me put it this way. If you're o older, if you, old, he said older Christians. If you're over 45, America's like Jerusalem. Yeah. And if you're under 45, it's becoming more like the whore Babylon. He said Babylon. Okay, pardon me. Um, <laughs> getting at the same thing. Right, well, the, the whore, <laughs> yeah. it's a little... Well, I'm just, you know, it's, it's a biblical phrase. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Just going with the biblical phrase here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We believe in that well, so, together. So, so. Yeah. So my question is, do so. younger evangelicals therefore retreat, whereas the others are trying to retake, like retake Jerusalem, like bring it back versus, hey, that's what I'm getting at. That's the temptation. Yeah. The temptation for olders is to dominate and retake. The temptation for younger is to withdraw and disengage. And I'm saying neither. Yeah. I'm saying go to represent whether good or bad, you're a citizen of the king. Jesus is going to build his church. Gates of hell will not prevail. Yay, we win. It might hurt a little bit. might take a few punches on the way, but that's okay. Or lose a few heads. Or lose a few heads. So, you know, just even, even today, um, I received Are a text. Are you tweeting right now? No, I'm, okay. I'm going to read you a text and then my really wise answer to my friend's text. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh. I'm just kidding. This is why we're friends. Yeah, right. Okay, so he said, um, he said, I received a text from my college roommate, now teaching high school math in New Jersey, and this is his friend's text to my friend. Today is Spirit Day, which is equivalent to Coming Out Day. Sad day. Wear purple to support. Just had song played on loudspeaker about how gay people can't change and how conservatives and religions can't change me. Some catchy soft rap tune. Okay, I understand the grief and the sadness. 
that that friend feels in in that right I, I I share it but here's what I said I find it's helpful honestly to keep reminding myself we live in Rome or Babylon it's like of course they have pagan rituals in other words the Christians in ancient Rome weren't texting each other or sending whatever they did and say can you believe the pagans are doing this at the temple well, we, yeah, that's, that's what they do. And we've been saved out of it. And now we're called to share the good news with those pagans doing their stuff at the, at the temple and to live different kinds of lives. So the, the Roman emperor, uh, Julian, writing in a letter, said uh, those Galileans, by which he meant Jesus' followers, those Galileans are taking care not only of their own poor, but ours also, meaning they're making us look bad. So this Roman emperor realized, okay, these people are living in different kinds of ways, and, and it's drawing people in. So as we live in Babylon, as we live in Rome, let's share the gospel. So I think you're saying, America is one of the nations raging. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I remember when I realized that. It was kind of unsettling. Oh, wait a second. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? I was like, oh. Is America exempt from that? Well, I thought, of course it's not. Yeah. We're indicted too. We have our gods. So you noted that, I think in a, maybe it was a conversation earlier today, that many of us would reject the prosperity gospel. But we have subtly embraced a civic prosperity gospel. Absolutely. That's so, right. Yeah, so explain that. Uh, I think you just said it really well. I quoted you. <laughs> but that was this that was the summary of like two minutes worth of helpful conversation well, well what, what is the pro- prosperity gospel it's, it's the idea that you know if, if, if you trust in Jesus and you have enough faith then he'll make you healthy wealthy and wise right and happy that's that's kind of how we think of the prosperity gospel well there, there's been a lot of preachers throughout American history well-intending preachers that have talked about the obedience of America will lead to God's blessing Whereas the disobedience of, 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 of America will lead to God's judgment. And what are they doing there? They're taking Old Testament categories that apply to the nation of Israel. They're taking the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and they're applying them wholesale to America. Well, God never made those promises to America as such. And that's why I'm calling it a civic prosperity gospel. You're taking something given to Israel and you're applying it to America. Now, that said... I do believe the wise man will flourish, right? And the foolish man will not. I do believe that God's law leads to flourishing. So there is also a sense in which, look, if you want to live wisely and flourish, you will pay attention to God's law. And a nation that departs from that, yeah, it, it will not flourish. It'll, it'll descend into its folly. So I'm kind of giving you two hands here, all right? On the one hand, no, God has not made special promises to America as such, the way he did to the nation state of Israel and the way he does to University Baptist Church and Chevrolet Baptist Church. But at the same time, yeah, we, 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 we should point people to God and say, this is the way of flourishing, O nation. Uh, lastly, and maybe briefly, are there ways in which... You've been brief. I've been long-winded. Yeah. Won't say anything. Um <laughs> Uh, how can we hold our political positions passionately 
like without becoming like overly polarizing or divisive. Any wisdom for us in that? And maybe even relate that to social media usage. Well, don't be a jerk on social media. That's easy. Um, we, uh, people are passionate about matters, political matters, because politics is the domain of justice, right? Political action is, is action in pursuit of justice. What, what is government? Government is the application of justice, right? That, that's, that's biblical and so forth. Um, so think about the Kavanaugh-Ford division. Why was that so hard? Well, because you had two sides with principles of justice in play, differently animated by two different principles of justice. One side saying, due process. You know, you presume, you presume innocent until proven guilty. And if we get rid of that, then, then where are we? And that, that's a real principle of justice. And, and then you had another side wanting to protect those who had been assaulted and recognizing all the complex dynamics that come with being assaulted or abused and, and being difficult to come out. And a lot of women having experienced that and saying, well, there's principles of justice at play here too. It was like satanically designed because you have two good principles of justice just like this. And then, of course, you add in all the dynamics of Washington, D.C. and the Senate and gamesmanship and all of that. And then, of course, principles of justice over abortion. Right? There, that is too, this intersection. Okay, so how, how, do, how do we deal with it? That's your, that's your question. Well, on the one hand, I am not encouraging anybody to give up your, your pursuit of justice. I'm not telling you to care less if, if you're on this side or this side or this side. I'm not telling you to care less about those issues of justice. I'm just, I, I guess I would remind you to remember that your own political judgments about what to do in this or that moment are not apostolic, Right? That is to say, they are your judgments. Now, I might think a political solution is to go this way, and you might think a political solution is to go that way, and, and I, I, I want to respect your conscience to do that, but you, your judgment might be wrong or mine might be wrong. And so I, what I want to do is I want to promote Christian freedom, think Romans 14, to disagree on some of these very important matters. I don't think we can eat meat. I think we can eat meat. I think we have to celebrate this day. I don't think we should have to celebrate that day. This is Romans 14. And what does Paul say to do? He says, forbear. Don't pass judgment on one another. No, I'm really, really convinced we have to celebrate this day. I, I think we're sinning if we don't. Well, I disagree with you. I, I think we're sinning if we demand the day. We still need to forbear with one another. And especially in those situations where we do not have a biblical text saying, this is the right way. That makes sense. Yeah, that sort of applies to, as you've said elsewhere, like the jagged lines. Straight line, jagged line. Yeah. So there's a straight line often from biblical principle yeah. to a practice, but oftentimes, like, should we have a single payer healthcare system? Yeah. Well, there's no straight line from the Bible to it's, that. It's, multiple it's, principles come to play yeah. after the yeah. Okay. So let, let me let's be really clear. So, for instance, I think due process is a biblical principle. I think pro-life is a biblical principle. Um, but making a judgment in this particular moment, if to be pro-life and to be pro-due process, does that necessarily mean I am pro-Kavanaugh? 
Well, at that point, you're, you're kind of at a jagged line, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to make a subtle distinction here between what is clearly biblical and what is my own calculation in the moment. And I'm saying when it involves our own calculation in the moment, we need to step back just a little bit and create space for other brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree with us without us screaming at them and saying, you're unjust. Good, good. Uh, well, I, mean, I think what I said in, back in 16, just before the elections, like, we just got to remember, Jesus isn't on the ballot. Right. And so to speak of, like, God's party, God's man, God's way, definitively, yeah. often as we do, yeah. uh, is, is not a good way to go about the conversation. Right. It's not going to promote that kind of charity. Right. Though we may hold very passionately, as I do, and I know you do, to particular positions. Right. And yet we can recognize there's sometimes different means to similar ends. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. Well, the, the, let's do a little like ecclesiology on you here. It's the church that has the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. That is to say, it's the church that has the authority to put Jesus' name tags on things. What do you do when you baptize somebody? You baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here's the Jesus. He was baptized. Here's the Jesus' name tag. He's with Jesus, O nations of the earth. And when a church says, this is the gospel, this is right doctrine, that's not the gospel, what are we doing? We're putting the Jesus name tag on it. So it's the church that has the authority to put the Jesus name tag on things, right? Okay, well, what happens when we say he's God's man? Or we say, this is the Christian political party. Well, we're putting the Jesus name tag on something. That we might not want to do that. What if he turns out to be a philanderer? What if he turns out to be a bank robber? What if he turns out, I mean, you really want to really tie Jesus' reputation, the gospel reputation? Baptize a party, whatever it might Baptize be. a party. Yeah. So that's what I'm just saying. You know, so parties make for useful instruments awful identities. So use it as an instrument, yes. You know, support your party, fine. Just Good, don't baptize even. it. Good even. Yeah. Just don't baptize it. Don't put the Jesus name tag on it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, We've talked enough. Questions from you all? We, we got mic runners? So come on, nice and prompt and quick. There we go. Excellent. Hello. Um, my name is Ito Ultini. I am an international student here. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm totally blind, and I have a question. Um, to what extent U.S. government represents Jesus? To what extent does the U.S. government represent Jesus? Yeah. Uh, the U.S. government represents Jesus in precisely, well, in one of, in one of two ways. On, uh, on the one hand, it represents Jesus in the same way every government represents Jesus. That is, Jesus has given governments of the world the sword to render justice. Every government has that. Just like every parent, every policeman, every, yeah, represents Jesus because God has given that authority to, to governments to implement justice, okay? So in that sense, uh, the U.S. government, like every government, represents Jesus. Now, there's, there's a further sense which one might say, uh, okay, what then is the difference? Is there no difference between good and bad governments? Well, yeah, certainly there are. I would say a good government uh, treats people as God imagers. Bad governments don't. 
So insofar as the U.S. government treats people as God imagers, it's representing Jesus. Insofar as it's failing to treat all people as God imagers, it's not representing Jesus. Question over here. Hi there. Uh, fellow graduate of the University of Wales. What's that? I'm fellow graduate of the University of Wales. Oh, great. There we go. You, do you ever expect to find that in Arkansas? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Wales, what? <laughs> yeah. um, okay, quick question about uh, eschatology. We kind of, I think you mentioned it briefly in passing, but not specifically. But I wonder how important you think it is that our eschatology is in informing our individual and corporate engagement in the public square. Yeah. You kind of mentioned like the Kingdom Now movement, yeah. and and um, that may have something to do with some of the ideolo ideology behind um, Make America Great, Great Again, for yep. example. Yep. But then there's also on the other side people who say America's not mentioned in eschatological prophecy, therefore it's bound for destruction. Why do we even need to worry about it? So I think sometimes eschatology is, is behind that oh, our engagement. What do yeah. you think? Yeah. Uh, people holding to, say, a post-millennial position, for instance, uh, understand that we are, as it were, building towards the kingdom, Right? And I would call that what theologians call an overrealized eschatology. Another word would be utopianism, right? As if we can bring to heaven to earth now, and we, or, or we can build toward the final state of things. And, and when you have that perspective, what's the danger of that perspective? Well, you tend to uh, force your way into things. You, you, you intend to push a little too hard you tend to become too coercive, too violent, trying to bring about the end times. You see? That would be an over-realized uh, eschatology. And if we have a proper eschatology, we understand that Christ has already come. He has already declared his kingdom. He has already sent the Spirit to regenerate and save a people but he has not yet consummated that kingdom. He has not yet come again. He has not yet, most crucially, removed the curse. Creation still groans in eager expectation, waiting for its full redemption. That means I can build the best government in the world and write the best constitution and it's still going to crumble and shred and collapse. There is a sense in which politics in this world is Sisyphean. You guys remember Sisyphus? He's the one who the, it was cursed by the gods to roll the rock up the hill, and then it would roll down again, and he had to roll it up the hill and roll it down, and he had, it was cursed to do that for eternity. Politics is like that. Let's suppose you have like the best president ever, passes all the right laws. What's going to happen? Next guy's going to come in and wipe it all away. And down the hill, the ball, the stone rolls. You know the best point in the Bible politically? 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon in the land, every person under their own vine and fig tree, prosperity. Just don't read 1 Kings 11. Right? So yeah, eschatology is critical. Question here? Hi. Hi. My name's Abby. I'm loving your book. I haven't finished it yet, so I'm sorry if you touch on this and then 
I read it, and my answer's right there. But um, so just kind of, we've talked, you know, you talked a lot about what it means to bear with one another. Um, I guess, like, going back to your extreme example of, like, 1933 Germany, like, if someone were to stand up or, like, you know, churches raging inside one, of, one another saying, no, this is unjust, um, what does it mean for church members and families to maybe even be raging with one another again with an like with a issue that is truly unjust happening in our country or something that our country is doing against another that is truly unjust yeah that's a great that's a great question uh i mean and nazi germany is a tough example to use because it's so extreme right so let, let me just if i could place that on the shelf uh for a second uh, and, and also, let's just be honest, sometimes those injustices are hard to see in the moment and easier to see in hindsight. So, for instance, in South Africa, in the 1980s and 90s, the Church of England, South Africa, decided, though, we didn't want to get involved in politics. We're just going to stay spiritual. And so they didn't contest apartheid. And sure enough, the Truth and Life Commission came afterwards and said, Church of, Sing Church of England, South Africa, you, you effectively were unjust and, um, and helped apartheid and undermined your gospel witness. So it's, it's tough to know when those moments come when we really have to take a stand and, and, and we ask the Lord for much wisdom for when even he needs to stand here and from the pulpit take a really strong stand on something. It's, it's not always clear. So pray for your leaders, pray for ourselves that we would have wisdom to know when we privately and corporately or individually and corporately need to take such a stand. Okay, let's suppose, but let me, to your, to your question of, okay, my family members are, say, or my friends are participating in certain things that I perceive to be unjust. What do I do then? And because he's your pastor, he should have a great answer. <laughs> we have a plurality of elders. I'd defer to the other six elders as you've just deferred to me. Talk to them. Be patient with them. Don't be a jerk. I think part of your, but your part of your straight jagged line is helpful here. Uh huh. So the the clearer this justice issue is tied to scripture, I think the clearer and more passionately we can speak to it. The further removed it is, as a direct implication, I think the more we have to hold lightly to it, even if we ourselves feel passionately about it. We just have to give space for disagreement. And so where we need to be passionate, I think, in many ways, is in postures of heart rather than in policies. So let's, let's use immigration for a second. I'm not an expert on immigration. I don't know anything about it, honestly. And I'm not going to pretend to tell you, like, I, I know what the right immigration solution is for the United States. I don't have a clue. I do know that my posture of heart from Scripture should care about the downtrodden and the hurting. Right? whether of this nation or any nation. And what's the best way to care for the downtrodden and hurting who are, say, fleeing up from, from El Salvador? I, I don't know. But I, know, I do know that my heart, if it's being conditioned by Scripture, should at least care. Right? So I'm going to be passionate about, what, first of all, what the right posture of heart is. And when I see just indifference and hardness of heart in my fellow Christians about some of these things, that's where I might want to poke them a little bit, you know? I'm not presuming I have the right solution. I don't. Well, I mean, I think I said on Sunday, 
nations have a right to protect their borders. Yeah. They can choose to build a wall. Right. A Christian doesn't have a right to be indifferent to that person among them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so, I mean, I, I don't want to present as they're building a wall or opening all the borders is the better solution. I just don't know. Yeah. But a Christian doesn't have a right to. Yeah. You said it just right. Well, no, I was just weirdest in Exodus. And he's speaking about the sojourner. He doesn't say, like, dismiss the sojourner. Uh-huh. You know, ignore them. Mm-hmm. You know, just you, you were once sojourners as well. Yeah. You know what it's like to be aliens. Yeah. So, yeah. Other questions? You got a question here? Yeah. We can repeat the question if need be. Can you hear me? Yep, there we are. Great. How would you apply everything that you've spoken tonight into a workplace where you have non-Christians, you have Christians from other churches maybe who understand the gospel differently? How would you help them? You know, it's October. People are starting to care about politics, the headlines. Honestly, like, conversations are, are happening more often. How would you apply it to a workplace setting? Number one, always be mindful of your evangelism and what you say or don't say. Is this going to undermine my credibility in evangelism? Uh, number two, try to listen and understand what they care about, what principles of justice animate them. Here's my view. I, I, I'm a strong believer in common grace, which is to say God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, or the righteous and the unrighteous, which is to say I, I, I tend to think that even the other side, if I'm on this side, the other side, they're going to have, because they're God-imaging human beings, they're going to have certain principles of justice that are pushing them, promoting, animating them, that are probably worth hearing. It's not like the people on the other side of the aisle are all evil and we're all righteous. It's like, go back to your doctrine of sin, please. Right? So, okay, so I want to go in, I want to step in, I want to listen empathetically um, and not just come in and spout. So, another way to put that is, Approach political conversations with colleagues at work, recognizing that often the plank is in your eye and the speck is in theirs, right? Or blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm just going to assume I don't see and understand everything correctly. And that's going to make me more of an empathetic hearer. I'm not telling you to compromise Scripture. I'm not telling you to compromise what is true or what is just. I'm just saying, recognize again that you're not an apostle with a direct beeline to the you know, Spirit of God telling you exactly what Jesus thinks on this particular issue. So remember your evangelistic witness. Don't undermine it. Listen empathetically in a posture of humility. And then be honest. Be provocative if you need to be. But not in a way that's going to harm relationships. What would you say? That's an excellent answer. Right here. All right, I think I'm on now. All right, so as Christians um, being called to speak truth, um, and as you mentioned as well, prioritizing uh, our roles in the church and not putting secular beliefs ahead of those aspects, Yet, speaking truth, wouldn't you say Christians have an obligation to um, educate ourselves and be informed about a lot of these topics? Um, So while there's not enough hours in the day to be experts on immigration, as you mentioned, but don't we have an obligation to to learn about topics, whether it's immigration or climate change, 
to yep. be able to speak truth. Yeah. Um, and then secondarily, to what extent should Christians as speaking truth um, be uh, upfront with other people, whether they be believers or not, who are peddling in errors or lies or falsehoods, uh, yeah. whether it's a, you know, a false meme or anything else, right? So to what extent do we need to educate ourselves and to what extent should we go around and help correct others? Uh, to what extent should we educate ourselves? Well, I think we have different callings. You know, you might be in a season of life. You might be, might be a mom with three little kids in the house and, you know, you're just going crazy trying, trying to, to, to keep things sane in the home. I, I'm not expecting you to go off and read several books on climate change before the next election. Whereas you know, maybe the university student has time to do some of that, and he's a political science major. Okay, right? So we have different callings. Uh, but yeah, I, th I think we're all probably, insofar as the Lord has given us a vote, we're to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. I think part of rendering to democracy what is a democracy means, insofar as we have time and God gives us the ability to do so, to employ that stewardship in an informed, educated way. I just can't tell you how many books that means you have to read or articles or what. Just a little bit, you know? Okay, as for going around as the policeman for all untruth in the world, uh, probably not wise. Probably very, very carefully. Knowing that when you're picking arguments with people, and I know that's not what you said, but let me just put a little bit more extreme. Picking arguments with people just tends to harden them in their positions. We all know that, right? Happens to me. If you argue with me, I'm going to dig my heels in. It's because I'm proud and vain. That's not meant to be funny, just genuinely. Um, so, insofar, I mean, it, it just depends on the nature of your relationship with the person, what kind of conversations, how teachable you think they might be, how much trust you have in that relationship, what the other costs in that relationship are. So, for instance, I spend a lot of time with a brother who is, let's just say, left politically, very left politically. And he says things at times, I just think that is complete and total nonsense. And... Uh, I don't respond at all because I'm discipling him and I really want him to grow in the knowledge of Scripture and the Gospel. And it's not that the Gospel and Scripture don't apply to some of those things. It's just that I want to get the first things first in his life. And I think he's going to mature in time. And maybe I'm wrong about those things. Or maybe he'll mature into a deeper understanding as I get the first things first. And that's a calculated judgment on my part. Right? So, it, bottom line, it just depends. One or two more questions. Jonathan, you're a lot taller in person, so I'm going to say that. Uh, you're like a character I would unlock on NBA 2K. So, um, here, so here's my question. I live in... That's Colby. Um, yeah, I'm Colby. Uh, <laughs> Is he an intern? <laughs> no. That's a good question. No, he's not. Um, 
So, Colby, be careful. Got the sass of an intern. He does, I know. I, I work at a secular job, and my boss is unapologetically an atheist. Okay. And he says, you know, very snarky, hey, are you an evangelical? And it almost seems like there's a lot of tension over the term because of what it now represents, where a lot of people define evangelical not all people, but left-leaning people identify an evangelical as someone who abides by the gospel according to Trump and lays his life at the news of Sean Han- lays his life at the altar of Sean Hannity. And so, what I'm saying is not would you use a different term, but how would you respond to someone? And it's probably happened to you before, who comes before you and says, "Are you an evangelical?" Knowing that's not what an evangelical is supposed to represent. I mean, the the like the example I Colby, can, I think we got it. Just an interesting. You understand time. what I'm saying? I, I think we got it. Yeah, I, I actually once had a boss who would say to me, "So are you handling rattlesnakes back there in your office?" What? Well, you know, you evangelicals, you're handling those rattlesnakes. Well, he was thinking like Pentecostals from West Virginia. He had a wrong understanding of evangelicals, right? Clearly. And I was like, Dave, come on, that's ridiculous. Um, so it, look, it's 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 a long game. Hopefully it's my it's my my testimony over time that's gonna help redefine for him. There's no conversation I can have with, with Dave in the moment or you can have with your Bob in the moment that's gonna correct that. It, it's over time as he watches your life and maybe along the way you can say little provocative things that kind of defy his presuppositions. So my friend Matt works in a law firm in Washington DC and he uses his Facebook feed uh, to you know what I, I mean? I think I know what you mean. He uses his Facebook feed in ways that provokes his brothers and sisters in Christ, but in ways that uh, he is working to help his evangelistic wor- uh, witness in his very liberal, secular, progressive law firm by saying things that they don't expect him to say. Um, and I, I appreciate that, sort of. He's trying to blow up the stereotype a little He's bit. He's trying to blow up the stereotype. Um, in order to have the real conversation. Right. Yeah. A general, a good practice I always find is ask questions. Well, what do you think we mean when we say evangelical? Yeah. And then you just go from there. One more question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Emily. So at the very beginning of your talk, you said that disengagement is not a good path because Christians need to remain engaged for love and justice. You've talked a lot about justice and so how do you, I, love and politics are not words we would often or ever put together inside or outside the church. So can you expand a little more on what you mean by engaging for love? Yeah, sure. Well, I, let, me, let me start with justice. First Kings 3.28, and the people were amazed that God had given wisdom to Solomon to do justice. Proverbs 29, verse 4, by justice the king builds up the land. So justice is the, the job that government has been given to do. You get some texts like that, and I've, it's Romans 13 similar, right? The word justice isn't used there. Um, well, what should, what should motivate that? Not hate. I mean, we're to, we're to love God and neighbor and everything. So in our pursuit of justice, all, all I'm saying is you're, you're doing it for the purposes of love. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of a text where those two things are tied together super tightly. I can't think of one off the top of my head. 
but just based on the general theological principle that everything a Christian does should be motivated by love. Am I answering your question? Do you have anything to say to that? Well, I think I'm, I was struck this last week preaching through Exodus, how you got Exodus 20, 10 commandments. You got sort of, okay, what does this look like practically in the life of Israel, 21 to 23? And then Jesus understands all of that is an expression of love of God and love of neighbor. Yes. And so to your point, I think Jesus is getting at the heart. We do all these things and we live this way because we love God and therefore we necessarily love neighbor. Yeah. And they go hand in hand. What is justice? In the Bible, justice is rendering judgment according to righteousness. Rendering judgment. I have a situation here in front of me. It's confusing. I need to render a judgment in accordance with the law, in accordance with righteousness. Right? It's, it's a, it, put it another way, it's, it's to, to, do, to do justice is to apply righteousness in any given situation, whether a court of law, uh, what you pay your employees, how you treat your children, different domains, different requirements. But I'm trying to apply righteousness. I'm trying to render judgment in accordance with righteousness. That's, that's what it means to, to, to do justice. Now, if we're believers and we believe, like David says in Psalm 119, that the law of God really is good, well, we want people to walk by the law of God we know it's good for them, right? We want them to walk according to righteousness because there's flourishing there. And if I love you, that's what I'm going to want for you. Maybe you've been down or you've been oppressed. Maybe you're the oppressor. In either case, I, I, I want you to be treated as God has created you and, and I want you to walk according to righteousness. So yes, justice should always be for a Christian motivated by love. You know, I think part of what the Pharisees get skewered for is they're always looking to narrow the application of that justice. Yeah, that's right, especially and, with regard to them. Yes, exactly. And particularly for those who aren't like them. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus goes right after. Yeah, well said. Yeah, yeah. Friends, um, that's all for now. But we've given two books away. There are more if you'd Yay. like to pick them up. Yeah. Send his girls to college. Uh, buy his books. <laughs> so wonderful to have you. Thank you for coming. Hope this was helpful for you. I'm going to close. But if we can, we don't often do this, but just an expression of thanks and appreciation. If you ever try to do that for me after a sermon, you will hear about it. Okay. God, we're grateful for tonight, grateful for the chance to think about the application of your word uh, to something like politics, which is often and sadly divisive, in part because we've lost uh, the notion that all are image bearers. And so, God, we pray, if nothing else, that we would be reminded that when we speak with those who are not brothers and sisters in Christ and whom we often disagree greatly with, that because they're an image bearer, they are therefore deserving of great respect and affection and love, and that we owe that out of love to you. And as we speak with brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, we want to be faithful, we want to be recognizing not just you know, our evangelism and the implications of that outside the walls, but as we were talking about earlier with the Lord's Supper and, and building unity and caring for one another and acting in ways that build unity and not create further division. So God, help us to have the wisdom to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.